not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness head on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and host of this podcast. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog, Unpickled, and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my newly released poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. I tell my story there, and I hold space for your stories here. Before we meet today's guest, I just want to start by telling you thank you to everyone so far who has gone out and bought The Ember Ever There, my collection of poetry on change, grief, growth, recovery, and rediscovery. I'm so pleased with this book, and the feedback has been phenomenal, which is an absolute honor. It's pretty vulnerable. Putting something out like poetry is akin to publishing diary excerpts, really. (laughs) And I'm not inclined to write a memoir. This is as close as I'm inclined to come is to share poems about what my experiences are. But I like this even better for me and for you because I feel like these are the crossroads of our truth. The emotional experience sort of boiled down to their essence. When you strip away all the details, what we're left with is the commonalities that we share. And so my hope is that as you read through these poems, you'll really see yourself in them. And for people who are not in recovery, but have a loved one in recovery, it's been a really wonderful way for them to understand what the experience is like for other people. I have a special section in it about the 12 steps, a different poem for each of the 12 steps. And as you know from listening to the show, I did not get sober in the 12 steps. And I wanted to write something that would reflect the affection that I hear guests of this show talk about their AA experiences. I just thought it was such a different way for me to try to capture and present another way of looking at the healing process through the 12 steps from the outside looking in, I guess, trying to capture what the emotional experience is that I hear people talk about. And of course, before I published them, I I ran those poems past people who are in the 12 steps, many of them being the people whose perspectives I drew on in writing these poems. And they said, yes, absolutely. This is exactly what it's like. You captured it. So i really, really pleased with how this has come together. I hope you will check it out for yourself or for a loved one. Again, it's called The Ember Ever There. It's available on Amazon or by order wherever you buy books. And it's also available as an ebook on Kindle, Kobo, and Apple. So that is my heartfelt, heartfelt thanks to you for your support and also my encouragement to anyone who hasn't had a look at it yet to please check it out. It would mean the world to me. And of course, it helps to support this program. The book projects that I'm doing are helping to offset the costs of doing this program and my blog, which of course are free resources and uh, will always be, (laughs) but there is a cost associated with creating them. And so I'm hoping to use my book projects 
to help pay for that. So that's it from my update. I'm really excited to introduce today's guest to you. This is something a little different, and I think we're going to have a fascinating discussion. My guest today is Maestro George Mariner Mall, the artistic director of the Discovery Orchestra and three-time Emmy-nominated public television personality. He has helped millions of people across the U.S. become more perceptive listeners and to heighten their classical music listening pleasure. So his goal is to help us become better listeners of classical music. But today, we turn our attention to becoming listeners of his personal story of recovery. Here's my conversation with Maestro George Mariner Mall. Maestro Mall, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thanks so much for asking me to be your guest. Well, it's an honor to speak with you, and I'm just so impressed with your work and so grateful that you have taken the time to come by and and tell us your story today. Well, um, Jean, I think it's important to share our stories, so I'm happy to do so. Well, thank you so much. So let's start by getting to know you a little bit. Tell us about yourself and tell us your story of recovery. Uh, I'm now 72 years old and counting. (laughs) <laughs> hoping that um, um, I'll still have quite a few to count here. And um, I find myself at this point still employed in my life's passion, which is classical music. I like to think that um, classical music has been with me almost prenatally. Uh, my mother was a fabulous classical pianist. And so I've read in various uh, accounts that babies in the womb begin to notice a lot of things and hear things in the last three months. Um, And so I wondered, for instance, how many times I might have heard her practice a certain piece of music uh, with me being right there at the piano with her. (laughs) So I, I, I say that because it is so much a part of my life. And um, my first sort of aha Uh, about classical music, realizing that I loved this so much was when I was four and a half. And I was uh, with my great aunt, and um, who was one of my babysitters, and and a recording came in the mail. Uh, I had not yet, you know, started kindergarten, but my mother was out shopping, and my great aunt um, got this recording given to her by the postman, opened it, put it on the record player, and it was the Dvorak New World Symphony. And um, I like to think of my life in two phases, before Dvorak and after Dvorak. And that was uh, really the demarcation line. And I have been an avid, avid music listener since that time. That was, I said, my first self-aware time of listening to a symphony orchestra play some classical music. Before that, I'm sure I may may have heard it, but I was not aware of hearing it. And that's, of course, a very big distinction. Uh, the house that we lived in was typical for our neighborhood. We lived in a working class neighborhood in Philadelphia. And like many of my friends, we lived in multi-generational households. In our case, we lived with my mom's parents uh, and her and her and her aunt. So I had these three extra parents in the house, which was very good and sometimes very bad, depending on the circumstances. But uh, there were lots of things to learn from them. Now, one of the things that I didn't know was happening at first, uh, but realized later, was that there was never, ever 
one drop of alcohol in our house. Uh, it was forbidden. And it didn't matter whether you had a cold or whether it was uh, New Year's Eve or whatever the occasion, Christmas, not even a glass of sherry, which I thought slightly unusual because many other people in our neighborhood consumed alcohol socially, and I didn't know why we didn't. But at a certain point, my mother's mother uh, began saying, you must never take a drink of alcohol. And what she probably should have said, but never did, was you must never take a drink of alcohol because it is entirely likely that you are an alcoholic, like my brother's and I suspect her father. Nana, of course, was born in the late 1800s, and people of that generation were very, very ashamed of talking about addiction, mental illness, or really any of life's problems, and especially, I guess, my grandmother, since she was first-generation American, but her parents were both British, and the whole stiff upper lip business and everybody keeping their feelings to themselves, life had almost a formal aspect in our house. Uh, due to the presence of my grandparents. So in any event, um, I, you know, I just realized that in her case, uh, first of all, as a member of the local temperance league, she believed that alcoholism was sort of a shameful failing of character and that her brothers were weak-willed uh, because they were active alcoholics. Now, you can imagine that if someone says to you just simply, you should never take a drink of alcohol every few days as you're growing up. You basically can't wait to try it. And uh, in my case, that opportunity was given to me at a 4th of July party, um, you know, by another family in our neighborhood. And I wandered into this party and they had a keg of beer and people were drinking it. And one of my friends said to me, you know, why don't you have a beer? So I, I guess I might have been eight or nine and um, I drank half a glass of beer. Um, promptly expelled it all, uh, made me very ill. <laughs> and I thought, well, obviously this is not for me. And fast forward a few years and um, I get into high school. And while I'm in high school, obviously I gravitate toward other musicians. Um, my mother had sent my brother and me both to a choir school for boys. And uh, so we got a tremendous amount of musical education as young children. And of course, she had insisted we learn to play the piano and that sort of thing. But when I got to high school, um, I naturally hung out with other kids with similar interests. And one of my good friends um, who played uh, a classical music, musical instrument, he, his father owned a tap room in Philadelphia. It's actually um, in the neighborhood where the film Rocky was filmed, uh, Kensington. And um, his father's attitude was, if my boys and their friends want to drink beer in my establishment, it's okay with me. Now, of course, that was patently illegal, but nevertheless, that was his attitude. And so uh, my friend and I would go to his tap room and have beer. And that was when I first began to tolerate beer. But in addition to that, uh, my friend's mother, who was an active alcoholic, um, served us hard liquor in her home, in their home. And um, that was when I guess I really began to have my first bad experiences with alcohol. I had my first blackout experiences. And, you know, my friend would say to me, do, do you have any idea 
what you did last night? And, and I would say, well, what do you mean? And so then he would describe to me my behavior and the next day, and I would have absolutely no recollection of it. And of course, I thought that there was strange and maybe a bit unsettling, but I didn't really give it that much thought. But I guess you could say that everything sort of went downhill from there. Um, I just began drinking more frequently. And by the time I went off to music school, I was consuming a lot of alcohol. And I had a roommate at music school who also drank heavily and, um, again, had firsts in that in that time of my life. Firsts as in, I never remembered before the room turning upside down. And I was at a party, at a fraternity party of the music majors. And um, <laughs> I just, I don't know, I sort of sampled everyone else's drink. I don't know what possessed me to do that, but I just thought it might be fun to try everyone else's beverage. And having done that, um, the room turned upside down. And I remember um, feeling safer if I were to get on the floor and sort of crawl around at this party rather than trying to stand upright or even sit on a chair. And of course, to my surprise, I met some other people who were also crawling around on the floor at this party, I guess, for the same reason. But um, it also unleashed a huge, huge, huge pain that I had been holding in. And uh, I crawled under a bed somewhere in this house, in this fraternity house, and just began crying hysterically. And when someone asked me what it was about, I said, well, it's about my mom. And what had happened was that when I was in high school, at the end of my senior year, my mother succumbed to breast cancer. And it was a terrible, terrible blow emotionally to the whole household and to me too. But I had not really dealt with that grief. I hadn't, hadn't, um, I just hadn't been able to face it. And I guess somehow down there on the floor that night, it just all came flowing out. And I just was just a mess um, in grief over my mother's death. Well, the next day, um, we had a rehearsal of a string quartet that I was playing in that was being coached by my teacher at the music school and a, a very wonderful violinist, fabulous violinist who um, helped me in many, many ways. But in any event, everyone sitting in that string quartet rehearsal, all these four students, all of us had been at this drinking party the night before. And he was trying to rehearse us through some music that we were to perform soon. And uh, because we all had such terrible hangovers, uh, we kept losing our place. You know, he would say now, um, start at five measures after N in this movement. And we wouldn't be able to find the place because our heads were banging so hard. And after about 10 minutes of that, and this was a significant experience, I'll never forget it. Um, he looked at the four of us and he said, all of you, the four of you, get out of here. You disgust me. And oh man, did I feel so, so low. I just, um, mm. I don't remember ever feeling so ashamed as I did that day, but it didn't stop me from drinking. And um, my drinking career, I guess, as we sometimes call it, just kind of uh, ran on from there uh, all the way through college. 
um, I did have rules about my drinking. And um, that was that I should never drink before a performance. And, um, and I knew that I shouldn't do that because I tried to do it once. Um, <laughs> I had an orchestral performance to play in one evening, and I just thought I would have a few drinks with dinner before the performance. And I remember sitting on stage and feeling like my fingers were somehow disembodied from the rest of me, and I had no idea what they were doing. And that scared me to death. And so I thought, okay, you must never, ever do that again because you're, you're going to lose your job. You're going <laughs> to gonna be fired from this orchestra. So um, I didn't do that again, but it, what essentially helped me develop was the habit of once everything was over in a given day, whenever that might be, if I had no more obligations, no work obligations, no social obligations, I would just start drinking in that evening until... I drank myself to sleep, essentially, um, so I passed out. And uh, <laughs> it's no way to live. And uh, I managed to get married <laughs> during this time to my first wife. Um, she liked to drink, but nothing at the level that I did. And, of course, it made for a difficult marriage. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, we <laughs> we did the best we could, but... People do a lot of lot of dreadful things under the influence, uh, hurtful things, uh, unethical things, um, and and I was no exception to that. So I felt pretty guilty about a lot of things most of the time. Most of the time, uh, I loved my first wife, but I was not able to really love her. I suppose because of my love of alcohol. In any event, um, at a certain point, we decided that we needed to move to New York City. And uh, that was a very frightening thought. Uh, neither of us had ever been in New York. Uh, we knew almost no one there, but uh, she was a wonderful operatic singer. I felt that unless we moved from Louisville, where we were at the time, to New York City, um, she would never sing anywhere besides Louisville. We, you know, we just had to get her to New York and get her a manager. So we moved to New York in the fall of 1975. And we had not saved nearly enough money. We began running out of money very quickly. Uh, I was trying to break into working as an orchestral musician in New York City. And uh, that was challenging because, again, I didn't know anyone. Um, on the other hand, her career began to take off. It was wonderful. We found her a manager and she made uh, both her Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center debut that first year we were living in New York. And uh, I was so happy for her. And uh, nevertheless, I was still drinking, um, uh, looking for sales on alcohol. Because I was running out of money, I made one of the changes that many alcoholics make. And that was that I could not afford scotch anymore, or certainly the scotch that I liked. And so I just began to drink vodka straight. And uh, as dreadful as that sounds, you know, no ice cubes, no nothing, just straight. Uh, and uh, and I would look for the cheapest one on sale at the liquor store. And, uh, you know, again, I still was being very mindful to not drink before rehearsal or before a concert. Uh, as I began to get work, uh, played a lot at Carnegie Hall when I first began getting work, which was very exciting um, to be there in you know, this hallowed temple of classical music. 
Um, but again, I just made sure that I didn't start drinking until I got home. Now, at some point during my sojourn in New York, in the early part of it, one of my good drinking buddies from Louisville, another musician who is about 10 years older than me, and we had known each other uh, in Louisville, um, he, uh, he moved to New York City. Um, he, he also had the, the alcohol problem pretty badly, and he had left his wife, and I think was filing for divorce, and he managed to get uh, his corporation to transfer him up to New York City. Well, when he arrived, I just thought, this is great. Now, uh, and I will say his name, Jack and I, um, began having a wonderful time drinking together and doing all sorts of absolutely horrendously dangerous things. I remember he had a Fiat Spider, um, and we would drive down the Palisades Parkway with the top down, absolutely intoxicated, totally inebriated. And I'm thinking, you know, it's just, it's a miracle. We didn't kill ourselves and other people as we drove this way. But in any event, uh, we had a lot of good time, a lot of fun, went to lots of concerts together, plays, and he was very bright, very intellectual, and a composer. Uh, that was his musical talent. And um, I guess it must have been in 1982 or so, something changed about Jack, and I really didn't know what it was. He just seemed really different. And um, so I asked him at one point, you know, and he said, well, he had joined a 12-step program. Uh, and he said, you know, uh, it wasn't just stopping drinking for him. There were other things to be thinking about and changing in his life. So I just sort of um, took that in stride and continued on my my merry way drinking. Um, but what I didn't realize was about to happen. He had decided that he was going to gently, gently try to start trying to convince me to think about my drinking, to examine my life and think about possibly stopping before something dreadful happened. Uh, because I was still driving inebriated and endangering my life, those others on the road and my passengers in the car. And I was, you know, still probably injuring my body. And um, I guess I could say that it was on New Year's Eve, 1983, uh, I realized it all had to end or I was going to totally mess up my life and possibly die. Now, my first marriage had already ended by now, and I was dating a woman for five years at this point um, who would become my wife. But, of course, it did occur to me <laughs> in sober moments that she might not marry me if I didn't stop drinking. I mean, I was amazed that she put up with my drinking as it was, but we didn't live together. We weren't married, and so I guess she just... I asked her once, you know, why, why did you tolerate that? And she said, I knew that there was something really wonderful in there if you could just get past this. Um, so she was willing to wait, and I'm extremely grateful she was, obviously. But I, on New Year's Eve, 1983, went to a party with her. And as I was sitting there at this party, I thought, this is it. I just can't go on. 
So I called Jack the next morning and asked him if he would take me to a meeting. I was, um, he was living in the city. I was living in the city. And he said, I have, you know, a good 12-step meeting I can take you to. And so um, we went. And of course, as I sat, it was a very large meeting. There must have been over 100 people in this meeting. And it, someone was speaking. It was that format. It was just a speaker meeting. And of course, I was identifying so much with what this man said. And I just started, I guess, quietly to cry in the back of the room by myself. But I knew that I was in the right place and that I needed to listen to what these people had to say. So that was 36 years ago, almost more than 36 years ago. And um, I guess I should say that I, I owe my life um, to the 12-step program, uh, as well as to my sponsors over the years. I had two of them who died, sadly. They were wonderful, wonderful people who uh, were considerably older than I was, and they're both gone now. But uh, I have a new sponsor who is also wonderful. And I think that, you know, the most beautiful part about the story was that after I stopped drinking that New Year's Day, 1984, um, after the initial period of sort of living in a fog and not knowing what I'm doing or thinking and just feeling physically really irritable and that kind of thing, I realized that um, some clarity was beginning to come into my life. And um, when I finally got my first sponsor, my, my uh, first real sponsor, I mean, Jack, I guess, was my first, first sponsor, but uh, he encouraged me to find someone to sponsor me, and I did. And this particular gentleman was wonderful. He was, he could see through any, any BS that I had to speak about, <laughs> which was just great. And I knew that when I heard him share. And so that was why I asked him if he would sponsor me. And I was so glad that he did. But in any event, um, he was there for all the next good things that happened. Um, first of which was that uh, Marcia and I decided to get married. Um, and when I asked her and she said, yes, I was so, so happy. So that was the first real gift of sobriety. Um, and it's funny, she likes to tell the story. We did not live together for the first five years that we were married. And actually, um, she might say that it took her five years to train me to be livable with, but but the real truth is that, of course, with our both being musicians, we lived around the corner from each other in New York, and neither apartment was large enough for both grand pianos, and besides which, um, musicians have to make noise every day. That's what they do for a living. They make noise by themselves, and they make noise with other people, and you can't really have two musicians living in the same apartment, and how are you going to share the practice time and the and the rehearsal time and all that sort of thing. So uh, we maintained our separate apartments for the first five years of our marriage. And, um, but it was just so great to get married and um, share my life with, with Marcia. Um, she is also a wonderful musician, by the way. She's a fabulous pianist. In any event, um, as it turns out that it came to be that I would be conducting for the first time in Carnegie Hall um, during this period of sobriety. Now, mind you, I was scared to death. 
I was, I just had this built up in my mind so badly. Oh my gosh, what if I'm a failure? What if I don't conduct well enough? What if this and that and fill in the blanks? And so I got to talk this all through with my sponsor. And um, <laughs> I remember he said, so you're going to conduct the Carnegie Hall. Who cares? No one will remember 40 years from now anyway. What, what are you so worried about? I mean, he was, he was great. He, he was good at teasing me. And um, so anyhow, that was another gift of sobriety. The, the, the first of three times I would get to conduct a Carnegie Hall. Um, the other good thing that happened was that I was able to, with the help of good friends, found my own professional orchestra. And um, this was in New Jersey. Uh, it was called the Philharmonic Orchestra of New Jersey. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful ensemble of musicians, many of whom I had been freelancing with in the city. Um, I knew the players that I really liked, and I was so happy that I was able to gather them together into an ensemble. So that was, um, we gave our first concert in 1988 after incorporating ourselves in 1987. And it's funny. Um, one of the things that we decided to do uh, as our first outing with this orchestra was to have a New Year's ball. Now, we couldn't do it on New Year's. I mean, that just seemed out of the question. But we actually wanted to have a ball in which people would be able to waltz, the Viennese waltz, while this full orchestra played. People don't get a chance to do that very much in this country. I mean, if you live in Vienna, uh, you could probably go to two balls a night during the holiday season. But here in the New York metro area, uh, there were not too many chances to dance to a live professional orchestra. So uh, we gave this at some point in January. I can't remember the exact date in January. Maybe it was the 18th of January. But what I wanted to get to was, of course, um, you know, it was an event in which most of the people were drinking up a storm, as you might expect. They were, you know, ordering drinks and wine and cocktails and what have you. And uh, I just remember thinking to myself, gosh, am I glad I don't need to do this? This is so wonderful. I mean, they can have a good time. I hope no one has an accident or trips or anything. But, you know, um, I'm so glad that I don't have to do this. Um, it was a really good feeling that evening. And, of course, it was New Year's Eve that I had my first realization that I had to stop drinking those many years before. So anyway, um, at a certain point, um, you know, I had been on tour to Poland uh, with uh, a youth orchestra that I was conducting. And um, when we got back from that Polish tour, I remember that um, all the talk on 74th Street, where I lived, was of this automatic weapons firefight that had taken place while we were gone. Now, mind you, at that time in New York, crack cocaine had made its way to the city. And you'd, you'd see empty vials on the sidewalk all the time, even in our so-called Upper West Side neighborhood of you know, 74th and Broadway. Um, it was it was dreadful um, finding all this drug debris everywhere. And uh, But what had happened while we were in Poland was apparently, you know, people had this little gun battle on our street. Now, whether it was, no one knew, was it government agents and drug dealers or was it who or what? The only thing was there was a bullet hole in the front of our door. And it really got my attention. And I said to Marcia, um, you know, I will not have you or me be killed by a stray bullet. That's just totally unacceptable. We're moving to New Jersey. 
So the next week, we began driving out to New Jersey looking for a place to live. Now, Marsha, who had grown up in New, in New Jersey, Marsha was born in Newark. She said, I don't want to go back to New Jersey. No, don't make me go back to New Jersey. Um, and besides, she had a full life for herself in the city, accompanying and coaching opera singers. And I certainly had a full life for myself musically in New York City. But um, I said, no, we, we just, we need to get out of New York City. And I said, besides, I have this professional orchestra in New Jersey now, and I'm spending a lot of time driving there all the time. So we moved out and uh, we finally wound up living in the countryside. And um, I think that Marcia had no idea that there were places as beautiful as Bedminster. Um, she had you know, known about the shore in New Jersey. She'd been to the shore, she'd been other places, but I don't think she ever had been to these beautiful, beautiful rolling hills that are out here in Somerset County. So anyway, we found a place um, that was close to where I work and um, uh, rented it just as an experiment. We both leased our two apartments in the city uh, for, I think, a period of two years. We could legally do it. And that was sort of our escape hatch, just in case we wanted to move back to New York. But it was very funny. Uh, the first night we were here, some deer walked up to our door. And Marcia said, look, the deer are at our door. And I said, yeah, it's the welcoming committee. And she said, well, that's it. I'm never going back. So <laughs> anyway, we've made a life for ourselves out here. And, and she loves it. She began teaching piano uh, to local neighborhood kids out here. And uh, there weren't any opera singers to coach. Occasionally she'd find one, but mostly just teaching piano. And she's made a wonderful life for herself doing that out here. And she continued accompanying people, mostly instrumentalists uh, at this point. And, uh, and I proceeded, you know, to continue conducting my newly found uh, professional orchestra as well as the youth orchestra. And then uh, at a certain point, I decided to let go of all other conducting obligations and just focus on the professional orchestra because I felt that it needed my entire attention. Now, mind you, um, Jack, my friend from the city, he, uh, he was really thrilled with what was going on with my orchestra. He just thought that was just great that I now had a professional orchestra of my own. And uh, he had retired from his corporation and said he was going to move to Mexico. And so this is like, oh, I'm going to say nine years after he got sober, eight years after I got sober. And Jack moves to Mexico and calls me one afternoon to tell me that he's drinking again. And I said, Jack, no. Um, and he said, well, you know, I was sitting on a beach in Acapulco and, you know, someone said, cerveza, senor. And I thought, you know, I'm cured. Well, um, it didn't take long. My friend Jack drank himself to death. Death. Mm -hmm. And so I tell people when I tell my story now that Jack saved my life twice. He told me, by the way, that he had gotten tired of the 12-step meetings in Mexico. He didn't like them anymore. And I guess I feel that, you know, he not only helped me get into 12-step program, but he also showed me what happens when you disconnect yourself so Jack saved my life twice. Now, 
I really feel that I owe all the good things that have happened. Uh, I, I mean, we just finished making our fifth public television show for what is now the Discovery Orchestra. The, the, um, the Philharmonic Orchestra of New Jersey morphed into what is now the Discovery Orchestra in 2006. And, and it's just, it just makes me so happy to do what I'm doing. I, we're basically teaching people how to listen to classical music. And, um, and it's working. I mean, we get wonderful feedback from people who see our television broadcasts and watch our little talks on, um, on, uh, on the YouTube channel that we have. And I guess I just feel like I owe all of this to the 12 steps. Um, none of this would have happened. I, I often tell people I probably would have died sometime before 1989, you know, but in any event, um, here I am. And, uh, I have, the most important thing, the love of my life uh, for 36 years. It's never hard for me to remember how long I've been married because it corresponds with my sobriety date. Um, and I, I uh, often think that it's, it's the greatest gift of my sobriety. So that's kind of where I've been um, all these years um, and really happy to be 72 and healthy. It's not as though there haven't been struggles. Uh, a lot of people think, you know, oh my gosh, sobriety and life happily ever after. We've gone through some dreadful tragedies over this time. I mean, losing Jack was a terrible tragedy for me. I, Jack's picture is on my bureau and I look at him every day. Uh, I loved Jack very much. He was a great friend, a wonderful musician, and I, I miss him. Um, and we had a niece, it was my wife's niece, who was diagnosed with leukemia the day she graduated from the University of Massachusetts. And she fought this disease for, oh my gosh, seven years, I think, and finally died when she was 28. Well, and I don't have to say anything to people who've been through experiences like this. I mean, it's just the most emotionally destructive kind of event that you can have in a family. I mean, her parents, who just this past weekend celebrated their 55th wedding anniversary, I, I don't know how they psychologically survived that experience. And in the case of my wife, she was extremely close to this young woman. And um, she was, it was Marcia, who's just a very effusive, happy person. 99% of the time, the sunshine left her for those years that her, her niece was suffering. And um, I, I remember going to meetings and I would just be sitting there crying and uh, I would share about it occasionally, but everyone knew what was going on in my life. And they just sort of let me cry there by myself without disturbing me. But I guess what I'm trying to say is you can go through some pretty trying experiences in sobriety and you find that you have the strength to deal with them, um, you know, whereas in the past, you would have just said, I cannot stand to feel this way. I want oblivion. I just want to be numb. I don't want to feel anything. And of course, that doesn't work after a while, uh, not without killing you, I guess. So um, both joys 
and sorrows. Um, it's really been wonderful to be sober. And, uh, you know, I was so sad to lose my, my second sponsor when he died a few years ago. Uh, he was just another incredible man. And his story was so unbelievable. I mean, really, I, I would love to write a book about his life because it was so inspiring, um, his recovery story and, and, you know, all that happened before and after. It's just amazing. Anyway, uh, that's, I guess, what I want to say. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. It really comes through as you tell your story how being free of alcohol created space for unimaginable joy in your life, as well as allowed you the capacity to, to process and heal through the hard times. Yes. And as you say, the, the instinct when we're drinking or for people that maybe aren't drinking alcoholically, but that use alcohol as a tool in their life, use it as a pause button or as a numbing factor. It doesn't, it doesn't allow us to process our feelings when we numb them. It just, it just holds them off until we can. And as you described crawling around on the floor as a, as a young person, um, (laughs) you know, the, that pain just waited, you know, it was just waiting for a way to, to come out. And, um, uh, it's just, it it all comes through so vividly as you tell your story. Um, I'm, I'm sorry for the loss of your friend, but I love how you are able to give meaning to his life and his passing and his Um, death. Yeah. Yep. hmm. So I'm curious about the role of the 12 steps and of meetings in your life now at 36 years sober. Do you still go to meetings? What does your do. recovery practice look like? I do. And now like in this today? strange time, all these meetings are online. <laughs> you know, we with the COVID virus, it's just been quite bizarre. But I guess there's something also good about it. I don't know. I mean, people are coming to some of the meetings that I go to from all over the country that I've never met before uh, because they're tuning into the Zoom meeting. You know, it's just um, quite something. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. I, I mean, the people who are in 12-step programs, I look on as my closest friends in life. I mean, I, I can say anything, anything to them. And they can say anything to me, and no one is passing judgment on anyone. It's it's a freedom that you just don't experience in your work life or anywhere else in life. I mean, it just doesn't happen. I know. I really feel like people that don't have the opportunity to be around other people that talk that way, that hold space for each other in that way, are really missing out. They I mean, are. Sometimes. They are. I, I often <laughs> feel like the whole world needs this um it's too bad the whole world doesn't have it somehow you know it i think all the all of the issues of our lives at this moment in in our country and around the world they would definitely be looked at in a different way did if mm-hmm. more people had this experience i think mm-hmm. 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 yes i think everyone could use the the recovery process in some area of their life i mean even if they're not struggling with an addiction or or um, an ism uh, that's identifiable, the, the, yes. the process of just stripping away your resentments and your rethinking your reality and your approach to life is yeah, definitely I, beneficial. Yeah, <laughs> definitely stripping away unnecessary baggage is, um, mm. is a really important part of the process. 
Uh, I used to like to think, I remember when my first sponsor in the city, I remember telling him when we were going through the steps, I said, you know, you know in those days, they still had garbage barges that they would take out to the ocean and dump. I think they stopped doing that. But when I first moved to the city, there would be these garbage barges, heavily laden with garbage that would go down the Hudson and on out into the ocean. And I, I remember telling him that I feel like the return barge when it's much higher in the water because it dumped all this garbage that, that I don't need to keep inside myself. It's just um, very important. Uh, that's a great analogy. I love that. Um, you are a very public person. Have you always spoken openly about your recovery or is that something that well, shifted for you? For if years? it comes up, I certainly don't avoid the subject. Um, I mean, I don't go out of my way. Obviously, part of my life has, and I guess always will be, being around other people who are drinking socially. Um, fundraisers for nonprofit groups are drinking events. You know, that's just part of what happens. So you're around people who are drinking, and sometimes they might ask you, would you like a drink? <laughs> no. Sometimes they're more persistent. And um, depending on the occasion, I might, I might just say, um, I don't drink. Or, or if I want to be funny, I might say, um, I have already consumed enough alcohol in the first third of my life to last me the rest of my life or something like that. Um, I, I might might be joking about it. But if someone asks me and I feel like they're sincerely wanting to know, I'm, I'm certainly willing to talk about it. Uh, because I think, again, um, I'm very concerned about people who are still addicted. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I know how unhappy and miserable their lives are. And I would that more people would find their way into recovery. Uh, so if I can be part of that process, I try to be. I think every time we share at a meeting, um, you never know who's sitting there listening and what effect your thoughts might have, your share might have on them. So I think it's important for us to be sharing our story and, and talking about it. I mean, again, I, I don't turn around at concerts and thank people and the program for my sobriety. Uh, that I don't do. Um, I, I don't think it's the time or place, but um, if people talk to me about it, I talk to them about it. I'm curious if you have developed a sixth sense or an intuition about others who might be struggling. Are you able to spot people in your life who seem to be struggling and how do you reach out to them I, if you I think you we that? do I think we do I've had several friends over the years um again sadly one I was trying to help um who ultimately also drank himself to death I think uh he might have died of some other contributing causes but I know that he definitely was not able to to give up alcohol but I you know I knew something was not right um, in the state of Denmark there <laughs> and, um, you know, tried to reach out. Um, and I think that, you know, we just have to sort of be, it's, it's not, it's like being on call as a doctor or something. Um, if, if you're aware that someone seems to be struggling, um, you know, you can gently or sort of around in a roundabout way, 
um, indicate that, you know, I've struggled in my life a bit, you know, and um, um, if you'd ever like to talk about it or talk about my struggles or whatever, I'd be happy to share them with you. I think you have to be careful, obviously. But we do, we do see people who need help, I think, perhaps more easily than mm -hmm. others. I mean, I was one of the people, again, because I wouldn't drink until nighttime. Uh, a lot of people didn't know that I was an alcoholic because I showed up at rehearsal and the concert and I played. I did my part, you know. <laughs> did your, your drinking, I'm assuming, began to escalate fairly quickly once you moved to drinking straight vodka. <laughs> yes. I've sometimes heard people say that that's a, you're, you're on the fast track. Yeah, it's definitely a sign. No, it got to the point where I carried a satchel with a half gallon jug of vodka. And, and actually there's, there's a funny story. I, I would take this satchel everywhere I would go so that for instance, even to a rehearsal that I was conducting so that after the rehearsal was over, I could immediately start drinking. And, um, you know, as I drove home, and um, I was at, I got to this one rehearsal one night and I dropped my satchel on stage as I took the podium and it was a glass jug of vodka and it went clunk. And I thought, oh no, it's going to, it's broken and vodka is going to start oozing into the first violin section. Thank goodness it didn't break. And I made it my rule from then on, only plastic jugs. <laughs> you learned your lesson. I did it. <laughs> uh, and that's the laughter of someone who understands that that was not at all the lesson, listeners. <laughs> right. That's the laughter of someone who knows now he really missed the lesson. Yes, exactly. Um, exactly. But, you know, I think, you know, it's also important just to talk about the role of music in my life. I mean, music is my life. Um, as it had been my mom's. And I, I really can't say enough about it. I mean, I think that, uh, again, thank goodness, sobriety has allowed me to fully enjoy the music in my life, uh, both as a performer and just as a listener. I, I listen to music every day uh, a lot, and uh, I recommend it <laughs> highly to other people. So talk a little bit more about that. How do you understand music to be healing or soothing? How can we introduce music into our recovery practice and, and yeah. how can it help? Well, the thing is that um, the particular kind of music that I deal with, which is mostly classical music, but it's also true of jazz, is that most of the music that I deal with has, has no words. It's abstract music. Uh, as in symphonies, concertos, string quartets, piano sonatas, or whatever you might, the genre might be, these compositions of abstract music. And the thing about abstract music is when there are just sounds, the irony of it is, is that even more emotional content can be expressed when there are no words. Now, I mean, I realize that for most of the world, there is no other music but song. And that's understandable. Song is one of the first, I think, human behaviors. I'm sure we started singing a kajillion years ago as a species. And, you know, probably we were jealous of the birds or something and decided we would imitate them. I don't know. But um, song is with us always. And, and, and I love songs. I mean, I'm the first one I 
just adore popular music. Um, I guess you could say, well, some popular music. My popular music cutoff date was somewhere around my sobriety date. <laughs> Strangely enough, I just sort of began tuning out of popular music at that point. But everything up to there in my life, beginning with Elvis Presley and the Everly Brothers uh, in the 1950s, uh, was definitely a part of my life. So I love popular songs and songs in general. But the thing about abstract music is because there are no words, a composer is able to manipulate the sounds to express feelings that you don't even know you have. I mean, it's, it's as though, even though you have these fairly normal quote-unquote feelings, like I'm angry now, or I'm lonely now, or I'm um, aggravated now, or I'm bored, or whatever, those kinds of feelings that you can name easily. And they are, you know, and of course, in, in popular songs, there's usually just one topic being discussed. It's I love my baby. She doesn't love me. I'm leaving my baby. Uh, my love has left me. I want my love. Where is my love? You know, I mean, it's, it's often on that subject. But there is much more to the universe of our feelings than just those things that you can name. Um, I mean, there are some people who feel that there's an entire inner emotional life that's being played 24-7 while we're dreaming, while we're awake. It's just constantly going on. And I feel that people who deal in abstract music have this uncanny ability to express it. Now, it can be in general genres. I mean, it can be on the happy side, uh, the positive scale, or it could be on the negative scale. But it's many, many fine gradations of feelings uh, from elation to the abyss um, expressed in a way in which, and this is the weird part about it, when you listen to a piece of music by somebody like Brahms or Tchaikovsky or whomever, even though they've been dead for over a hundred years, it's like they are sharing their deepest feelings with you as you listen to this music that they wrote, uh, as it's being played by these musicians in front of you or a recording of it. And, and you're feeling such a connection to this person because you realize they're singing your song. They're playing your feelings. They're expressing your feelings as well. You have felt the way Beethoven felt on this occasion. You have felt the way Brahms felt on that occasion. And it almost moves you to tears. It, 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 it's a very powerful sensation, which I sometimes call the goosebumps sensation. But it just allows you to explore your inner emotional life in a way that nothing else that I know of does. I love how you describe that. Um, I think I read somewhere that you say that a lot of us are used to tuning out music. It's in the background and we don't allow ourselves to connect with those emotions because, you know, maybe we don't have time to feel them right now. I'm busy. I'm right, too busy exactly. to feel my emotions. I mean, that, don't make yeah, me we, feel. <laughs> we actually have to make a decision to give our undivided attention to abstract music, or as far as I'm concerned, even to a pop song. I mean, I'm always drawn to the music. But what has happened is that because recorded, uh, electronically reproduced music is with us everywhere we go in the industrialized world. If, it doesn't matter if you go into a restaurant. Well, all the places you can't go right now because of COVID. But, but wherever we go on the planet, there's all this background music all the time. And it's trained 
generations, generations of human beings to ignore music as sort of sonic wallpaper. And um, so you just tune it out. It's, you know, if, you, if you're in a restaurant eating with someone and I say to them, wow, did you hear that last song? I love that song. And they, they, they look at me and they go, well, was there music playing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's definitely... It's a, ba- a downside of its being everywhere prevalent, you know? You're right. You're right. And to be in the presence of live music being performed is to experience the energy that goes along with it's it. It's astounding. Yes. It really is. And even if you think you don't know anything about a particular type of music or instruments, it doesn't matter no. because it, you develop a fondness for it just by witnessing it yes. being played. And, and that's, yeah, that's, that, that's my theory, essentially. If you are able to be present with music, completely present, it will start speaking to you in ways that you never dreamed possible. And it sounds to me like this is really the goal of your work is to make this connection for people and to teach them how to listen. It is indeed at this point. So talk more about that before you go. I I just, you know, I think that to listen to music is one of the most wonderful experiences we can have in life. And in order to do that, uh, I have to help people do two things. One, have an aha around whether they're actually listening or not. In other words, somehow provide a mechanism for them to be able to see whether, oh, I'm just hearing this music right now rather than giving it my full attention. Okay, oh, so I have to do that. And then once I get people to agree to give music their undivided attention, then I begin helping them notice details that might have escaped their attention. And my theory is that the more details we notice, the richer the emotional experience will be. Uh, It's not any different than profound friendship versus what I call the doorman relationship. When I first moved to Manhattan, there was a doorman in my building named Eddie, very nice guy. And our relationship consisted of every day, my walking past him and he's going, hi, George. And I go, hi, Eddie. Hi, hi, hi. It was just, hi, Eddie. Hi, George. Hi, Eddie. Hi, George. The doorman relationship, compare that with a friend who has shared the deepest moments of their life with you and you with them. That's what it's like to listen to music as opposed to just hear it. Mm. How can our listeners learn more about you and about the Discovery Orchestra? Well, if they visit our website, uh, www.discoveryorchestra.org, that's a great place to start. Um, They can also go to Amazon. Our television shows, except for the newest one, are all there on Amazon, um, free to uh, Amazon Prime members. And you just have to, you know, type in Discovery Orchestra on Amazon, and you'll find us. And um, and then if they live in the area, or even if they don't live in the area, uh, I have a twice-a-month radio program that's on WWFM, uh, which is in Mercer County, New Jersey. But uh, their website, WWFM.org, of course, can be listen to anywhere in the world uh, at any time, like all radio stations at this time. Uh, It's an incredible moment for radio to think that you're not just broadcasting to your local area, but anywhere in the world, people can pick up your program. So all of my radio shows called Inside Music are on the WWFM website um, under About Us and our programs. So you can find them there. Um, So there are those three ways 
to find us. That's wonderful. I will make sure that links to all of those are in our show notes. So listeners. Oh, that's great. Just, Thank you. Just Yes. So all you have to do, listeners, is is click on your device and uh, the show notes will pop up underneath where you're listening to this interview. And then you can connect to all of these sites. Maestro George Mariner Mall, thank you so much for your time today. It has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Again, thank you. Thank you so much, Jean, for inviting me to be on your show and your podcast. And um, great luck with your new book. <laughs> I'll look for oh, it. thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's wonderful. And listeners, as always, so grateful you're here. I hope you learned something new today. If you would like to say hello to the maestro or to send him a message, you can forward it to thebubblehour at gmail.com and I will make sure he gets it. That's all for this week. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, please take good care. Own it, I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame. Strong just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see the old I did that Not proud but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free I take back.